Welcome to another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you for listening, liking, subscribing, sharing, and leaving a review for Beyond Risk and Back. I'm your host, Aaron Huey. Thank you so much for being here. I, once again, and I think it's going to be like this for a long time now, found an amazing guest who's drinking coffee as we speak. Um, on Podmatch, they're not a sponsor, but I just will say if you are a podcaster, or want to be a guest on podcast, you need to get your butt over to Podmatch. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome. Anyway, Christopher Howard's with me today, and he's got a show called Coffee Over Suicide. And by God, uh, we have to talk about suicide. These numbers have not go down, not gone down, not for teens, uh, especially. This pandemic has been really rough on families and numbers of all kinds of pandemics are going up. Youth, self-harm, depression, especially anxiety, suicidality, suicidal ideation. And when we talk about suicide and we have to talk about suicide, we have to have this conversation. As I was reading through Christopher's bio and all the stuff that we provide each other over there on Podmatch, he's, he's going to bring the real story. So if you are a parent of a teen who's struggling with depression and suicidality, suicide attempts and suicidal ideation, let's talk about it. Let's, uh, let's make this show a brutal, honest show, uh, and say the things that need to be said. Let's kill the secret that's taking place. So thank you for joining me and thank you for joining my guest, Chris Howard. Chris, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, you bet. Thank you for having me. Let's jump right in. Um, I, I asked a little bit offline, but uh, you were right away ready to play full tilt. So I wanted to keep it all for the air. How did you end up choosing coffee over suicide? What what was going on in your life with suicide? You said it's just like this weird thing in your life, but yeah. I I know you meant a lot more than that. What is what does that mean? What what is suicide and and your life look like? Oh, it's a it's a pretty long road, and uh, I, I hope that your listeners will forgive me if it, it at times seems like uh, uh, I get a little silly with it. Uh, and the reason for that is because I've I've lived with this my whole life, and there are certain things about it that are sort of darkly funny to me. Um, it, it's it, it's like human nature, you know, it, it, when you go through something sort of traumatic there are a lot of ways to process uh sometimes going to a funeral you get the giggles you know it's not because you're really upset or you're it's not because you really think it's funny but uh it's just sort of a human response and so i have a little bit of that in me <laughs> so that being said uh i'm about to go very dark and let you know that my first memory of being introduced to uh, what was eventually going to be called Bipolar One was when I was around five years old. I was coloring uh, on the top of the balcony in my parents' house, and my crayon rolled off the balcony onto the floor below. And I thought to myself, if I were to jump, that would be the end of me. My head would open like a clay pot and I'd be done. And the idea was attractive. And it was something that I kind of couldn't get out of my head uh, pretty much for the rest of my life. 
it was omnipresent. And my first, my first thought at an attempt at suicide was when I was nine. Uh, I thought that the world would be a better place without me in it. And I was, for some reason, a very quiet, very sad kid. I didn't have a whole lot of friends, didn't really do a lot of things. I read a lot of books. <laughs> and, uh, but I wasn't considered even necessarily a very smart kid, uh, just a very busy kid. And I wrote a note saying, uh, I'm going to do this. And uh, when you find it, I don't want you to be sad. Uh, wrote a note to my parents and I left it in the library book because I thought they'll find it eventually, but they won't find it right away. But I also had no idea how libraries worked. <laughs> and they checked those books immediately. And so, of course, uh, I, I was going to do it at the end of the school day. And um, I got pulled out of class. There was a police officer there and my parents got called out of work. And, wow. you know, it was it, it was a scary thing for them. It must have been terrifying for them, you know, because they, they had no idea. So, of course, after that, it was uh, counselors and therapists and psychiatrists and just trying to figure out, like, what do you do when your nine-year-old is wanting to commit suicide? Uh, it, it's It's been kind of a strange conversation since. I mean, I, I was institutionalized a couple of times as a teenager, um, and I really thought that the it was the medication's job it was the therapist's job to fix whatever was in me that was busted and i wasn't doing any work <laughs> it i mean what kind of sense does that make <laughs> so that was i mean that was really the big deal for me was the the having having the the insight after a certain point oh, they're not here to fix me. They have no idea what's going on. The only person that knows what's going on here is me. And it's my responsibility to tell them what I'm going through, what I need, how I feel about things, and to check in with the reality of the situation and, and see how valid that is. And that started a long, long road of figuring out who I was as a human being. And then right around the time my first child was born, I realized I, I was actually still feeling like a suicidal person. I was, I was thinking about it all the time. It wasn't something that I really necessarily even wanted to do. It was just something that I thought about a lot. And I remember one day I was driving home from work and I took my hands off the wheel of the car on the highway and I closed my eyes for probably 30 seconds. And I realized I'm someone's dad. I can't, I can't do this. I can't be 
this and be somebody's dad. So I've got to figure this out. I've been managing to stay alive all these years, but now I'm somebody's dad. And it got kind of thinking about my dad and what he had to go through and the feelings that he had uh, knowing that his son was going through this stuff and he wasn't sure what to do about it. And now, am I going to have these same problems with my children? Did I pass this on? And all of those things were sort of lingering fears that in some ways exacerbated the situation, but uh, it really made me get serious about it. And that's when I discovered uh, this, this pervasive thought that if I was stranded on a desert island with no therapist, no medication, <laughs> no anything, it was very likely that my own brain was going to kill me. <laughs> and so I thought, I've got I've to see if I can figure out a way to exist with these feelings and with these thoughts because they're a part of me. So how do I be somebody's dad? How do I be a person in the world who, who has these thoughts? And it, it honestly sort of got to the point where I could recognize when the, the, the dark passenger in the back of my brain would say things like, you know, what do you think the front of that bus smells like, you know? <laughs> and, and I could, I could see that and go, yeah, I mean, I could find that out or I could plant flowers with a unicorn. Both of those thoughts are just as reasonable <laughs> and just as likely to happen. And that's what it turned into. It just turned into a thing where it's like, yeah, the thoughts come in. There they are. They're just not an option. They're just not an option. How, how, there's so many questions that have come up through, through listening to you talk about this. The first one that I want to ask and we'll get to, but I'm going to, I want to make sure we ask it. So I'm going to say it out front is you talk about the therapists and the meds. They can't do the work that you had to do the work. I want to know what that work actually is. But before we get to that conversation, yeah. I want to understand this concept of suicidal ideation. If you're, there's an obsessive nature about it. There's an obsessive, you're saying it, those thoughts are constantly there. And as a child, now that you are a parent and have a child, uh, my first client was an eight-year-old who had uh, attempted three times. Um, and and uh, now that you are a parent, how do you expect to be able to, as a parent who doesn't think that way at all times, how could you teach one of my parents, one of my listeners, uh, what that's like to think about it constantly? And how do you help a teenager say, um, yes, that is an option, but here are 999 more? Right. Because we are dealing with a child's brain. Not an adult's yeah. brain with prefrontal cortex development and hindsight and experience with life. So, so let's start with the 
How do you teach a parent what that's like to be thinking about suicide constantly? That, that is really the, the question right there. That's the million dollar question. Uh, I, I think that there's, there's a couple of things about that. Um, let me tell you what it's like first. Yeah. Um, and I can, uh, I can access this pretty easily. It's, it's, it's something that, uh, uh, I've learned how to manage very well as an adult, but I can access what that felt like as a teenager and as a young child very easily, uh, because it was, it was tough. It was traumatic at the time. Um, it, it definitely made things very difficult. It made just about everything difficult because you have this idea that won't go away. And you're absolutely right. It's, it's obsessive. It's, it's almost like getting yourself in a, uh, in a loop, you know, the thought just, it's there and it won't go away. Uh, and it begins to color your perception of everything around you. And it's almost like you've got these blinders on where you can only see the negative. You can only see the way that your existence is flawed. You don't see all of the positives. When you're in it, it feels like the only reality that there is. It feels like there is nothing on the other side of it. It's it, it's hard to wake up in the morning and brush your teeth and go to school and feed yourself and have friendships and relationships when you don't even feel like you're going to last beyond maybe the day, maybe the week, maybe the month, maybe the year. But it seems like the reality is at some point I'm going to be dead. And that point is, is the only thing I can see. I can't see five years from now. I can't see past the end of the feeling in this moment. So that's what it feels like. Was that OCD? Was that the bipolar? Is that a trauma response? Is there environmental dysfunction, neurological dysfunction? Like, where is this rooting from? That is really it. And it's different for everybody. Sure, of course. So for me, uh, as far as as far as where that's come from, I mean, with hindsight, of course, yeah. Trauma response, probably, yeah. I mean, there were there were a handful of things, but the strangest thing of all was that you know I think back on my childhood and I think back on my folks, and uh, it's kind of a strange thing because they were never they were never abusive. They were never. Uh, I didn't grow up like in a, a house full of mean people or anything. They never you know, smack me around or called me worthless or anything like that. But it was a difficult house. See, my parents were, uh, uh, my parents were together and they both brought in children from previous marriages. Okay. And then I was born. Got it. And 
So there was a lot of tension in the house with those other kids as they started to grow up and become people. My sister had a lot of difficulties with uh, the law and, you know, in and out of juvie. And my my other sister uh, had an eating disorder. And uh, I have no idea what was going on with my brother. Uh, no idea. We kind of actually don't talk. <laughs> we didn't get along. We just never got along. Uh, and so I don't know him very well. In fact, I think that that was sort of the main theme that I can say I understand now as an adult is I, I felt kind of disconnected from my family. I didn't feel like I was really part of it. I just sort of felt like I lived there with them. Right. And it's not like there wasn't love. There was, but my parents were also people who worked and they were very busy and you're a gen x kid yeah yeah absolutely so it was they were gone a lot which isn't their fault you know it's but but at the same time it was like i was alone all the time even though i had siblings i had i had three siblings i was most of the time alone and my parents did have a lot of stress and there was a lot of fighting in the house but between the kids, which caused stress between my parents. It was it was pretty scary, pretty stressful. Hmm. But also, yeah, there were there were a handful of things that I can look back on and say, I think that was probably something. Uh, there was some, uh, but it doesn't sound like you're holding those things responsible. No. Yeah, I mean they they they're they were there and they they might have fueled it but it sounds like part of it. Yeah. Not all of it. Right. And and I think that's a very important distinction yeah. because the the things that shape us into the people that we become all of that is important and it's important to uncover those things and understand those things. But after a certain point, you've got to figure out who you're going to show up as now. Right. It's like, who am I now? Who am I going to be now? It's like, these things happened to me, but so what now? What? Yeah. These things happened. How am I going to deal with that? Because I've still got things to do. And, and all of that matters. You you had talked earlier about the humor piece, and and I'll tell you, yeah. a year after I graduated high school, and this was four, five years after my letter and attempt, and how I survived my first experience, you know, true experience with suicide as an option. But uh, a year after I graduated high school, uh, two of the three of us, Neil Baker and myself, were playing frisbee out in front after uh, taking some time out of out of uh, school after high school, and we decided we were going to call the third Mike Pohl. And uh, Mike, we were always the three amigos. Um, Mike said he couldn't come over that night, but he'd love to see us, and he'd killed himself the next night. And while Neil and I were at his funeral. Neil leaned over to me and he said, you know, we're not pallbearers, we're pole bearers. And I cracked up laughing out loud in the middle of his funeral. Yeah. And 
of course, you know, just felt devastated and completely embarrassed and, but later training as an EMT and being trained by firefighters and, and, you know, working side by side with police officers while I was doing security and stuff, the sense of humor that is required in recovery of trauma, um, is a sign of recovery. You know, the, the people who can laugh about the crazy shit they did when they were addicts, uh, yes. is that, that step in recovery. Uh, you, you've literally done standup comedy. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> and you know, if you ever want to know what it's like to, uh, uh, really want to kill yourself, try to do standup <laughs> comedy. <laughs> Because uh, the first time you bomb really hard, uh, it's both the worst and greatest feeling you'll ever have in your life. In <laughs> fact, I think that could save a lot of lives. Do you because, have bombing on stage? Yeah, because the moment you bomb on stage really, really hard, uh, there is almost nothing worse that could ever happen to you. <laughs> yeah, right. Very freeing. It's like, it's all uphill from here. Yeah, this is the worst the, thing that's ever been. Here's the lowest point. Yeah. When you, when you do these talks, do you find pushback on comedy? Cause in, in my head, I always have the voice of my audience. Yeah. Suicidal ideations, suicide attempts. These are traumatizing to families. How do you, how could you tell parents, my listeners, you got to look for the good. You got to look for the light. You got to look for the the comedy. Because I, I mean, literally, but my biggest coaching with with parents who are dealing with teens who have been suicidal is, hey, before you ask me what you should do with your teen, you got to get out of your trauma. Because I, I'm dealing with parents who almost lost their kids. Yeah. How do you uh, how, how do you get a parent to laugh? I mean, that's, that's individual, uh, you know, it depends on what people find funny, Yeah. but at the same time, uh, let me share this with you. So I have, uh, I have a daughter who, uh, uh, was sent to me by her mother to live with me because she was suicidal and having all of these problems and, um, my ex-wife just did not know what to do af after this point, because the, the kid was seeing a therapist, um, on medicine, kind of doing all the right things. We were talking remotely, you know, I, I was, uh, uh, I was living in a different state, but, you know, saw the kids, you know, uh, over the summer and over, over the phone all the time. So, it just became a place where it was like, okay, uh, I need to take a way more active role here. And having that conversation with her, where we had to say these things out loud, where, yes, you're suicidal. Yes, uh, yes, dad, I'm suicidal. I don't want to live anymore. I don't want to do any of this. During that conversation, because I know her, I, I said, look, we're going to try a couple of things and don't worry if it doesn't work out, you can kill yourself later. And we laughed so hard <laughs> oh at that. God. And it was, and it was so not funny. 
But it was the funniest thing in the world at that moment. <laughs> when we're talking about suicide and teenagers, when we're talking about our own feelings of depression and frustration and anxiety and fear and, and anger and fatigue around being a parent of a kid who is really struggling. One of the things that we do is suffer in silence as parents. Is is this idea that as a parent, somehow your situation is different than what other people or other parents are going through. And I know when we say that out loud, we know it's not true. Yet, I have seen over and over because of how many parent workshops I have led when I ask from the front, how many of you have had your children steal your car? and some shaky hands go up at front and I look at the people up front and I say, turn around and look. And they turn around and half the audience has their hands up. And suddenly there's a recognition that you are not alone. You are not terminally unique. You're not so special, you're gonna die from lonely. And when a parent recognizes that, they recognize that there are people out there that can understand and help. I wanna give you two resources. Number one, I want you to go to Parenting Teens That Struggle on Facebook because that is a free group that I have to for parents. There are 1,500 parents on there who are going through what you're going through and asking the questions. And number two, I want you to go to brabapp.com, B-R-A-B-A-P-P.com. It is 56 parent sessions. Everything I have ever taught parents in the last 20 years in an app that is unbelievably affordable. It's affordable because I want every parent to recognize that this information is out there and everybody needs it. There are three levels to the course, the red, the yellow, the green. The red is for the really beyond risk kiddos. The yellow is for the at-risk kiddos and the green is for the kids who are doing good, but you know they could do great. So you're gonna take a 10 question quiz, figure out which one of those three to start with because you get all three courses for a really, really low price. How low? I want you to go look. It's gonna blow your mind. And it's extremely high quality. Brabapp.com, B-R-A-B-A-P-P.com. Parents, you're not alone. The help you need is out there. I wanna get back to Christopher and keep talking about coffee over suicide, because now I wanna talk about the coffee part, because I love coffee. Chris, let's let's talk about the coffee thing. You, what you said to me before we started the show about coffee, and I said, why coffee over suicide? And I like it because it's like I'm choosing coffee over suicide, but you took me in different directions. So talk about naming your, your show, Coffee Over Suicide. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, first of all, the, some of my earliest memories uh, uh, around coffee are the fact that uh, my dad uh, has been sober for most of my life, but uh, he got sober when I was little. Okay. And part of his recovery uh, was replacing the booze with coffee. <laughs> so he did, he did that thing that uh, a lot of AA people do. He had, he had half drank cups of black coffee all over the house everywhere i've got yes i know i do too yep and it was just something i acquired a taste for and then years later 
Uh, I was playing in punk rock bands and traveling around in a van with a bunch of people. And one of the things that you can always count on is a cup of black coffee. If you're a cream and sugar person, you can't count on that. You don't know when you're going to get it. You don't know the quality of it. Black coffee, you're easy to please. You can find it anywhere. And if you're not too discerning, 7-Eleven is great. <laughs> so coffee became a thing for me. It, it, it became a thing that I could, uh, I could count on. I could rely on. I turned it into uh, a daily ritual, if you will. You know, you put the coffee in, you get it going, starting your day with some level of intention. And that's where the, the title of the show came from. It's this idea of placing your intention to ground yourself in the moment of where you're at. You can put that focus on just about anything. If you want to put your focus on your breathing, if you want to put your focus on uh, a pen or a coin in your pocket and really just sort of ground yourself in the reality of where you are at the moment right now and not thinking about the problems you're having, not thinking about what's happening for the rest of the day, but just centering in on one thing that you can put your intention to and uh, set yourself in the world with. And for me, that's a great cup of coffee. I love it because I think it really supports parents in the, in the idea that when your child is struggling and their life is so out of control, pulling everybody in the family along with them, the one thing that you can count on is those moments in the morning with coffee. I, I love auto drip coffee. I love the concept and idea of a Keurig, but I use a French press and I don't like French press coffee that much, Right. but that routine, that ritual, the boil, the water and what, in what order and how many minutes to wait. It's my morning. Now it's the first thing I do in yeah. the morning. And I had not seen it as part of my, my morning affirmations. It absolutely is. What are, what are the steps? I mean, you were suicidal as a child. You see that your yeah. parents had the struggle. You have a daughter that struggles with it. You said at the beginning, your mother-in-law died by it. Yes. Yeah. My mother-in-law died by it. So what are your step-by-steps for the parents whose kids are dealing with this? These families who are dealing with this, give the us a one, two, three. You've got to be honest. You've, you've got to be willing to open up and be completely bare because no sugar coating either. You don't, yeah. you don't play you patty can't. cake with this conversation. Yeah, you really can't. You've got to be willing to open, uh, open your chest and pull your heart out in front of your child. You have to, because it, when they recognize that you're willing to be so honest uh, they feel safe that they can be honest as well. And you have to be able to listen and really listen without just reacting. Because the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to be afraid. And what happens when you're afraid? Sometimes you can react in ways that you're not really proud of. How many times has your kid done something where they look like they were going to get hurt? And your first reaction was, well, knock it off. What are you doing? <laughs> you know, you get angry a little bit even. 
they're in danger. You know, they're going to fall snap off the monkey bars and break their arm. Yeah. Snap out of it. What's the matter with you? And it's not because you hate your child or you hate what they're doing. You're scared. You're afraid. But that fear can hinder you in helping them. And so when they're coming to you saying, I've got a problem here and you can't let your first reaction be, well, knock it off. <laughs> You've got to be able to say, I'm here to listen to this. And, and that can be hard. That can be incredibly hard. But it's in those moments where it, 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 it's helpful to know that you've got it in you to be able to just be right where you are, plant your feet and say, this is where I am. This is the reality. And this is what we're doing right now. I'm listening and really listen. And that is really step one is if it's not even a matter of that thing where, uh, you know, you're, you're. Your kids think that you're their best friend. It's not, it's not that. It's trust. They just have to know that, that they can trust you. And that's everything. That's all of it. Because the conversation can't happen without the trust. And the trust has to be established somehow. So if you're willing to listen, and they know you're willing to listen, and not judge, and not immediately uh, just just push back on you're not feeling this, you're not doing this. You can't take your own life and be that kind of person. You can't be the sort of child that does this. I didn't raise you to, you know, because it's not about you. It's about them. And so that requires really, really stepping back and listening. That's that's the most important thing you could ever do for your child. When would you, having a conversation, knowing it as well as you do, having processed suicide, suicidality, suicidal ideation, and attempts, uh, to the extent that you have, how would you know when to call 911 for your daughter? Wow. Yeah, that's, that's tough. Man, that, that, is, that is the toughest one. When to call 911. There are, there may not even be any good answers on this uh, from me. Uh, it's, it, that's, that's a tough one. And I'll tell you why that's tough. Because you should take every conversation about suicide seriously. As if it's, as if this is the time it's, it, someone means it. Because they always mean it. You should always assume that when someone says that they're suicidal, they mean it. If you can't be there in the moment, uh, you should definitely let them know, uh, I'm going to call someone to come get you. If that's 911, if that's an ambulance, I mean, I've had that happen to me. I've had ambulances show up and it's, uh, it's not fun but it was necessary it was absolutely necessary so there are times for sure uh if you if you're not there and you suspect something is off the way that i would suggest handling it and this is just my opinion on this here let the child know you're going to call 
I'm going to call somebody. And you can even ask, I mean, uh, do you need me to call someone? Do you need me to get you some help? Do you need me to send someone? And then if you can stay on the phone, if it's, if it's a phone call, stay on the phone until you can get there face to face. Uh, if you can't, if they're not responding to texts or phone calls, uh, and you suspect something is going on or, or you're worried, call, yeah, make the call. If you're really concerned, make the call because if you end up having to pay for an ambulance showing up or something like that, so what? So what? It's, it, it, it really, it really matters, especially if someone is, is struggling that hard and you can't be there all the time. You've got to do what you've got to do. Do you still feel suicidal? Yeah. 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 It's strange the way that it comes in because, uh, like right now today, I feel great. The world is wonderful. I got my place in it. I've had my coffee. I'm ready to go. I'm going to go to work later. I'm going to take my dog for a walk. You know, all of those things are great. Uh, but there are times when it, when it comes in, the suicidal feelings come in, but I don't feel them the way that I used to. I know what they, I kind of know what they are now. They're, they're temporary. So for me, when it comes in, I say, all right, I guess we're riding this out for a while because it ends. These feelings end. They always end. And I feel better later. It doesn't feel like it's ever going to happen right now, but I know that it always does. So maybe it'll be the rest of the day. Maybe it'll be the rest of the week, but it'll end. And I just got to ride it out. And I always do. How do parents find you? How do people follow up with you from the show? Uh, well, I'm willing to talk to absolutely anybody that wants to talk to me. So you can find Coffee Over Suicide on Facebook. You can email me info at coffeeoversuicide.com. And I've had a lot of conversations with people. I try to be very, very careful to let people know I am not a licensed therapist. Uh, you can you can look at a conversation with me like spending time with a very friendly golden retriever. It's uh <laughs> It's it's going to be maybe a little fun and you might feel better afterward, but, uh, you know, that's <laughs> that's all you're going to get. My guest today was Christopher Parker Howard, Coffee Over Suicide. Check out his podcast. Follow up with him by email at info at coffeeoversuicide.com. Um, get, your, get your healthy dose of Golden Retriever and bring a cup of coffee. I want to thank Christopher for his authenticity and openness for today's show. This is not something we can sugarcoat. That's the mistake we make about suicide. It's not something to tap dance around if your child is struggling with it. You have to ask them, do you have a plan? Because if they do, that's a deep level. They've thought it. And I, the first thing I ever learned about suicide was that. There's not some suggestion that you might accidentally give them about death that they haven't already thought about. So don't be afraid to say anything, to do what, what Chris was saying, to pull your heart out and show it to them. 
I want to thank Deepin Productions for producing the podcast, creating the music, and making me sound so good. And I want to thank Your Cause Consulting for making sure the show gets in front of all the parents who need it. And parents, if you know a parent who needs this show, please share it with them. And you know what I'm going to say next, families, teachers, clinicians, you have to take care of yourself first. You have to take care of your adult relationship second so that you can do what you need to do third, and that's take care of your kids. If you do those other things first, you'll give your best to your kids. Otherwise, you're just giving them your fear, your stress, your anxiety, your anger, your frustration, your fatigue. Take care of yourself first, your adult relationship second, and your children third. I'll see you next week on Beyond Risk and Back.